Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to uh, be with you guys again this morning. If you have your Bibles today, you can open it up to Luke chapter 8. Always love that song when we sing it together as a church. Love hearing your voices lifted high that way. Um, As you're turning to Luke chapter 8 this morning, I just want to reiterate what was stated earlier, and that is that uh, we're really glad that you're here. We really are. And whether you are a longtime UBC attender or um, brand new with us today, whether you are joining us here in person or listening online, um, whether you are a committed Christian or maybe you're kind of seeking and wondering what the Christian faith is all about, or even if you're kind of antagonistic to the Christian faith, I want to say that I am really glad that you're here today. You are joining us on the second week of a sermon series that's called Brand New. And in this sermon series, we are talking about the fact that we believe Jesus changes people. In fact, uh, you are in a room today with who knows how many believers who have been changed by the life and the love, and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian who's been changed by Jesus this morning, can you just say amen? Amen, amen. Amen. We believe that Jesus changes people. We believe that you don't have to do what you've always done because, because of Jesus. You don't have to be who you've always been. We believe that when Jesus changes your identity, he will change your activity. He'll change what you do when he changes who you are. It's an inside-out type change. So we are doing this series because we believe Jesus changes people. We believe he changes all types of people. Last week in this sermon series, we started out really kind of with a general sermon about how Jesus changes sinful people. Today, and really through all the rest of the sermons in this series, I want to get a little bit more specific on focusing on the types of people that Jesus changes. And today, I want to talk to you about something really interesting. I want to talk to you about how Jesus changes tormented people. All right? And when I say tormented, what I mean is Jesus changes demonized people, people who have been under satanic and demonic influence or attack. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So parents, just like last week, If you have little children in the room whose ears are sensitive and tender towards this type of thing, now is the time for you to just kind of take them out and, you know, make your way out into the lobby. And you're welcome to take them down to our uh, multi-purpose room where we have kids ministry going on. So parents, kind of just be discerning about the needs and the sensitivity of your own kids. Because today we're going to talk about how Jesus changes demonically tormented people. Now, as soon as I mention this topic, some of you are like, yes, we're about to get into it, right? Most of you, though, are like, hmm, not sure about this, right? We get a little uncomfortable with it for a few reasons. And, uh, you know, especially as Baptists, you know, I think sometimes we, we affirm the reality of Satan and sin and demons. We, um, we affirm the reality of the spiritual realm and, and, you know, the angelic realm and that type of thing. But we really don't study it too much. We don't tend to kind of understand ministry in that realm a ton. And so we can be kind of unfamiliar with it. So it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Some people, though, get uncomfortable for a whole different reason. And that is because when we start to talk about addressing issues pertaining to Satan and demons and their effects in this world, some of your lives may be so wrapped up in demonic things and so caught up in these that it makes you uncomfortable and bristly because you don't want to be confronted with that. Other people in this room, though, you may feel uncomfortable for another reason, and that might be because if you're honest, you're not sure if Satan and demons are real. You, you really haven't experienced this part of the world, at least not, you know, that you're aware of. And some people can just kind of be reluctant to admit that Satan and demons are real. Now, some people who are even in the church will say things like this. They'll say things like, well, you know, in Bible times, they, 
really didn't have the same medical understanding that we do these days, so they just kind of labeled, uh, you know, mental health-related issues like schizophrenia and insanity, those types of things. They just labeled them as, you know, kind of demonic oppression, but, you know, we've just kind of advanced beyond that, right? So some people will say that, even people within the church. And so if I went to them and said, hey, do you believe that Satan and demons are real? Some of them would say, no, not really. If I asked the same group of people, though, hey, do you believe God is real? Oh, they would give a resounding yes. So here's my question. Why believe in an invisible supernatural being who influences the world for good while at the same time not believing in an invisible supernatural being or group of beings who influence the world for evil? Right? Why not? And the, and the answer that I would get probably would be something like this. Well, come on, Jason. You really think that there's some red creature hiding out in a fiery cave somewhere with a pitchfork and a, and a tail kind of masterminding all these wicked plans in the world. And I would say, no, I don't believe in that devil because that's not the devil the Bible presents. The scriptures present a different picture of Satan and demons and their work in the world. And if you're going to believe the Bible, then you must believe that Satan and demon, demons and their influences in the world are real. In fact, isn't it true that one of the most uh, effective tactics that an enemy can do to you is to convince you that they're not there? Once you start buying the lie that the enemy is not there, what does that do? It makes you susceptible to all sorts of attacks, surprises that can be coming upon you when you literally least expected it because you didn't think they're there. So God has given us the scriptures. The, the scriptures tell us about Satan and demons, their works and effects. And part of that is so that we will know that they're real and they're there and we will know how to have victory over them. Today, we're going to look at a story from Scripture of a man who was tormented by demons, but then he met Jesus, all right? And we're going to look at this today. So here's how we're going to work through today's message. We're going to work through verses 26 through 39 of Luke chapter 8. Like always, I'll make some teaching points along the way. We'll bring it home with a couple applicational takeaways for us. And then just like we're going to do in every sermon in this series, you're going to hear a powerful testimony from a member of our church about how she has experienced God's work in her life coming against forces of evil and darkness, um, works and effects of Satan and demons. And we're going to close with a time for anybody in this room today who feels led to receive prayer. We're going to close with an opportunity for you to do that as well. Why are we doing this? Because we believe what? Jesus changes people, even demonically tormented people. So let's start out in verse 26 of chapter 8. And actually, before we do that, always important to remember the context of our passage. So let's remember some basics here. This, we're looking at the book of Luke. This is called Luke because it was written by a man named Luke. In the opening verses of Luke chapter 1, he tells us why he's writing this letter. He says, I'm writing this uh, to give an orderly um, report, to give an orderly um, report on these events that occurred during the life and the ministry of this man, Jesus Christ. And so he lays out this orderly series of events. Chapter 1, 2, he talks about Jesus' birth, even a portion of his childhood. Chapter 3, he talks about this man named John the Baptist who preached and prepared the way for the coming uh, Messiah, Jesus. Chapters 4 through 7, he starts to talk about Jesus' early ministry, uh, his call of his disciples, his initial preaching and teaching, even some of his miraculous works of signs and wonders. And then when we get to chapter 8, 
we see that right before our text, Jesus has just calmed the, the sea. The winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee were rising up with his disciples while they were out in a boat. And Jesus comes and he speaks the word, peace be still, and the winds and the waves calm down. And what did the disciples say after they saw this? The disciples said this, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? That's the big question leading up in context to the passage that we're going to look at today. So imagine the disciples being amazed, probably a little bit terrified by what they had just seen Jesus do out on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we pick up, verse 26. Verse 26 says, They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So if you're imagining the Sea of Galilee on a map in your mind, just imagine kind of the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So imagine these disciples, they're probably already a little bit freaked out because of this man Jesus who had enough power in his words to calm the winds and the waves. They're probably like, let's get out of this boat, let's get on some dry land. They're excited to kind of have some sense of normalcy around them. But as soon as they hit dry ground, as soon as they get off the boat, something else crazy happens. They get approached by a naked, homeless, demon-possessed guy, right? Not your typical day. And look at this man who came and talked to Jesus. It says that he wore no clothes, he ran around naked, he lived in the tombs, away from the city, away from other people. These are, this is the description in Luke's gospel, but this same story is told in the gospel of Matthew and Mark. Matthew says that this man was so violent and fierce that he would let no other person pass by him. Mark's gospel says that he cried out constantly and continually cut his own body with stones. And it says here in Luke that, that the demons had come against this guy for a long time this way. So Jesus and the disciples, they meet a demonically tormented man. And they see this, and when this man sees Jesus arriving in the boat, it says that the man ran to meet him on the shore. So look and see what happens next. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So this man comes to see Jesus and you notice some things about what he says. Like right away he says, you know, what do you have, what do you have to do with me? Please don't torment me. This man is saying, which is interesting to me because I'm like, what do you mean don't torment me? Like, what have you been living under for this last season of life? Naked, homeless, you know, going out of your mind. Like, you've been living in torment. So why does he say don't torment me? Here's why. Because it's not actually the man who's speaking here. It's the voice of demons who were living within this man. The demon knew that just as he had put this man in torment, one day the Lord was going to put this demon in torment. All right, and we're going to get to more about that in just a minute, so hang tight on that thought. But the next thing that this voice, this demonic voice says through this man is that he calls Jesus son of the most high God. I want you to catch this. This demon-possessed man recognizes something about Jesus that the disciples didn't even recognize just a few moments earlier on the boat. The disciples had just said, who is this? 
the demons come and they say, you know who this is? Son of the Most High God. The demons and the disciples both see the power of Jesus. They are aware of who he is to some extent. And what do they do? They have an appropriate amount of fear. The, the disciples trembled. They wondered who he was. Here, the, the demon inside of this man comes and he falls down in front, bowing before Jesus. They have a reverent fear of God the Son. And yet these demons begged to not receive the torment that they knew that was inevitably coming for them. Now, verse 29 tells us more about why the the demons inside of this man were speaking this way, why they cried out like this. Verse 29 says, For he, talking about Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So here we get a deeper understanding of what's going on with this man, right? It says that Jesus commanded the demons to come out of this man, which means that for a while, demons were living inside of this man, right? This man was demonically possessed. And we see kind of what happens, what happened with this man, what can happen with other people when demons are living inside of you, taking control of your body. It can control your voice. It can cause you to speak in a strange tone, just like this man cried out in a loud voice. It can give people, demons can give people um, unusually inhuman strength, just like this man could break bonds and chains. Demons can cause dramatic reactions to the presence of Jesus, like this man screamed and then fell down to the ground. It can cause, demonic oppression can cause people to uh, become obsessed with death, because where did this man make his home? He made it uh, in the tombs, in the cemetery. So this is demonic possession. And this man was demonically possessed. Well, at least he, he was that way until he met Jesus. And Jesus came and cast this evil spirit out of him, which just leads to an important kind of doctrinal side note that I want to make sure we're clear about right up front. I want you to hear this. Demons cannot possess a person who has met Jesus, but they can oppress a person who knows Jesus. Those of you who have been saved, forgiven, your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. The scripture says that you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This means that you are protected by the power of the Holy Spirit from demonic influences coming and living within you and indwelling you that way. You're indwelt with the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of darkness. We've been bought with a price, right? Greater is he that is now in us than he that's in the world. So while demonic forces can't possess a believer, they can oppress us. You do a full study of this in scripture and you can see that demonic forces can trouble us, they can tempt us, they can come against us, they can even bring us harm if God permits it. But while demons can oppress a believer, they cannot possess a believer, just like they could not possess this man after he had met Jesus. Look what happens next in verse 30. Verse 30 says, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So this man's, the words coming out of his mouth is that his name is Legion. You know what a legion was? A legion was a, a military term that denoted a group of 6,000 soldiers. All right, so it says that this demonic voice identified itself as Legion because there were many inside this man. So we don't know for sure. 
Maybe it's literally 6,000 demons. Maybe it's just a large number. Maybe it's a statement of hyperbole right there. You know, who knows? The bottom line is, this man had a whole host of demonic spirits living within him, and it was a terribly tormenting thing. So this multitude of demons began begging Jesus for something. What are they begging him for? Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, the abyss is an interesting thing to study in Scripture. Just to kind of summarize it, I'll say it this way. The abyss is a place, a very specific place, where certain fallen angels are being held for a time until their time of judgment. 2 Peter 2 talks about that. The book of Jude talks about that. The abyss is the place where, from which powerful demonic, devilish um, leaders will arise in the end times and make an influence in the world. The abyss is where Satan himself will one day be cast for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. You can read about all this in Revelation chapter 9 and 11 and chapter 20. So that's the, the abyss. It's a real place reserved for fallen angels, Satan, demons. So here, the demons begged Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss. Now, this is Luke's account. If you read Matthew's account, the way that Matthew writes it is that it says that these demons said, hey, Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? Which means that they knew something very important. They knew something very frightening. They knew that God had appointed a specific time when torment was indeed going to come upon them and they would be cast into the abyss. So the demons tormenting this man knew that there would be a day that would be coming when they would be cast into the abyss. Now that day had not yet come. Jesus had not yet fulfilled his total mission. The events that are going to result in demons and their judgment in the abyss hadn't yet necessarily been fulfilled here. It wasn't time for them to be sent into the abyss, but it was time for them to be sent out of this man. And... Jesus is about to do that. Actually, he's already done it by the time we get to this point in verse 32. So look at what happens in verse 32. Verse 32 says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him not to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Right? So, you know, we've talked about demon-possessed people. You know, imagine there's demon-possessed animals. Right? This is... Surely every shark and snake and spider in this world, right? <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, though, there's a lot that could be said about what's going on here. Let me tell you, let me just make a general observation. Jesus was willing to send a whole herd of swine to their death in order to keep one man alive. You know what that shows me? Jesus cares about human life more than animals. But look at this culture we live in today where some people in our culture are so concerned about saving the whales and they're less concerned about killing the baby that's in the mother's womb. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus has something to say. Let's, let's not act like Jesus wouldn't have a value system here. I'll save the rest of that sermon for another day, but... But I do want you to notice this. Like, Jesus cared about this guy. He wanted this man's life to be transformed and saved and changed. Keep reading in verse 34. 
It says in verse 34 that when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. So you can imagine these herdsmen, they're watching the pigs. One minute they're just kind of hanging out, grazing on the hillside. The next minute, they're literally jumping off a cliff down into the water. If you do a Google search for images of this particular area, you can kind of see this very likely the same cliff with the hillside where the, the pigs would have run over the edge. You know, I'd be, I'd be completely shocked if I saw that happen. Like, what has just happened here? And I would do what they did, right? I'd probably run away and start to tell everybody, whoa, you want to know what just happened? So that's what they did. On to verse 35. So then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So look at the difference in this man, right? He's, he's no longer naked. Now he's clothed. He's no longer tormented by demons. He's in his right mind. He used to want Jesus to kind of leave him alone. Now he's sitting at Jesus' feet. He used to want to live among the dead. Now he's hanging out among the living. And Jesus changes people. He changed this man. And you'd think that the crowds would be like super thrilled about this. They'd be happy. But what does it say? They, they got scared. They became afraid. So what do they do? Look at verse 36 and 37. And those who had seen it, they told, right? So imagine the herdsmen or other people who had seen all these things occur. Now they're telling the people who had just showed up. They're telling them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people um, of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. They're talking about Jesus here. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. Guys, the crowd knew who this man had once been. They, they knew that this, this man had been once filled with so much strength they couldn't keep him in bonds or chains or in their jails. He could just break free. And now they met a guy who's even stronger than him, who could change his life. They started to freak out. They got scared. They got afraid. So they asked Jesus to leave, but the man whose life had been changed, man, he wasn't afraid. He was totally different. Look at verse 38. Verse 38 says, the man from whom the demons had gone, he begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Guys, this man wasn't afraid of Jesus. He wanted to stay with Jesus. You can't blame this guy. Imagine him living in this torment, and then he meets a man who can totally change his life and kind of give him back some normalcy, set him free, give him community again and right mind and, you know, allow him to stop harming himself, right? This man, of course, wanted to stay with Jesus, but Jesus had a different plan for this man. He wanted other people, Jesus wanted other people to hear what God can do. So he sent the man out. And I want you to notice this. Jesus told this man, go and declare how much God has done for you. So the man went out sharing how much Jesus had done for him. What did this man come to understand? Jesus is God. Son of God most high, to whom the demons bow and from whom the demons flee. What's Luke's point writing this whole story? Is the whole point for us to 
kind of just have a fascinating story and get interested in demons? No, let me tell you, the point of Luke writing this story is to, to tell the world Jesus changes people, even demonically tormented people, because he is God the Son with the power of God himself, right? This is Jesus whom we proclaim. He can change people, tormented people. And I want to say this to you as we get ready to bring it home with some application. Jesus can change you. No matter how tormented you may be coming into this room, no matter how broken your life may be, no matter how troubled you are, even if you have a sense that there may even be demonic oppression being poured on you in this stage of your life right now, I want to say for you, Jesus can change you. That's our first takeaway. If you're living in spiritual torment, Jesus can make you free. If you're living in spiritual torment, Jesus can make you free. Guys, spiritual torment is a real thing. I know we get a little bit uneasy about it in our Baptist circles and our kind of our, our Christianity that's filled so much with head knowledge, but we're reluctant to really delve into the spiritual realm on an experience level. But listen, like these things happen. Right? This is real history from Scripture. Let me remind you, like when we go through struggles in this world, not all of our struggles are going to be struggles against demonic forces, but some of them will be. What do we understand when we study the breadth of Scripture? We understand that in this world, we really um, fight against three things. We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? We, we live in the world, a, a, a broken world where there are things like tornadoes and earthquakes and, and just the effects of sin, uh, you know, they, they impact the world around us. Praise God, one day he's going to make a new heaven and new earth and there will be no more of that again. But right now we live in a world that is affected by sin and is broken. We live in a world where people have different values than we do as Christians. They have different values than God has. So sometimes things just happen in this broken world that we live in. So sometimes the hardships that come upon us, they come just because we live in the world. But there's also the flesh. Those of us who have been saved and born again, praise God, we have been created new on the inside out. God's Holy Spirit has come and lived within us. We have a new nature because of Christ. And yet still, we have this flesh that remains. One day, praise God, he's going to return again. There will be a resurrection of the dead. We will receive glorified bodies that will be imperishable and perfect in every way. But until that day comes, here we are in our body of flesh that is still susceptible to temptation, can still get sick, can still, we can still be bodily affected and our inclinations of our heart can still be drawn to sin and temptation. Just like, you know, that old man that's still dying off. He's, he needs to be put to death, but he's just kind of hanging around for a while. So our, our struggle sometimes can be against the world or the flesh, and still sometimes our struggle can be against the devil and demons and their schemes towards men. So how do we know? How do we know if the oppression sometimes that we come under is uh, demonic or not? You know, we got ready to start the first service and my microphone wouldn't turn on, you know? Oh man, devil's in the sound system. You know what happened? I just forgot to plug my little microphone cable in. Like, you know, we get so quick to like throw like the, you know, devils behind every rock. Sometimes we're just dumb, right? Uh, here's the thing. How do you know when satanic attack is coming your way? Well, 
we get some examples from Scripture, right? We learn about it here. What does demonic oppression look like? Sometimes it looks like people being out of their minds at times. This person was out of his mind. Now, what I want to make clear here is I, I don't believe that every time somebody has a medical diagnosis of schizophrenia or insanity or something else, you know, dementia, I'm not saying that that's spiritual attack. But sometimes there's no explainable um, rationale. Things like that could be a demonic attack. What about times when people bring harm upon themselves, just like this man was cutting himself with stones repeatedly? It makes you put up your spiritual antenna a little bit more when you start to realize how much of a culture there is right now of suicidal ideation and people cutting themselves and various things where they're bringing harm upon themselves. We need to wake up to the reality that Satan, you know, actually likes to steal, kill, and destroy. What do we see here? We see that some, uh, this man who was under satanic oppression, demonic op- oppression, he was able to become fiercely violent with superhuman strength. I've never seen that myself in any sort of spiritual experience, but other pastors have. And we've heard the stories and the reports. What do we see right here? We see that this man, because of the demon's work in his heart, he became obsessed with death. He started living in the cemetery. He felt at home among the tombs. You ever, don't you ever get concerned about our culture's fascination with death? I look back on some portions of my own life, and there are seasons of my own life where I'm like, why was I so caught up in things of the darkness? We need to pay attention to things that, are the eye gate into our soul, the ear gate into our soul, the movies we watch, the things we see on screens, the music that's coming into our ears, the cultural kind of emphases that we have in our world where things of death are just emphasized. And sometimes as a church, we just go along with it as if it's just normal. Again, what a great tactic of the enemy to get us to believe that he's not real. So that has nothing to do with him. We need to pay attention when we start to see a culture of death being propagated. And don't even get me started on things that have to do with euthanization and abortion and such. Don't tell me that Satan's not at work in those scenarios. We look at Scripture, we can see other specific works and effects of Satan and demons. Sometimes their work leads to physical ailments. You can read that in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 12, Matthew 17. Sometimes Satan work, Satan's work compels people to evil actions against Christ, Luke chapter 12, 22. Sometimes the work of demons and evil spirits causes people to mock the things of God, Luke chapter 4. Sometimes the work of Satan and demons influences people to understand and know things beyond their own learning. Acts chapter 16 talks about this. This one might hit home for you. Sometimes it's the oppressive work of Satan to cause you to refuse to forgive someone who has sinned or wronged you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about that. Satan's oppressive work can take the form of people coming into the church preaching a false gospel and bringing in heresy. Guys, these are just some of the things that the demonic work of Satan can look like in this world. And so listen, as I'm listing these things, some of you may come into this room and you're kind of, you're dealing with that if you're honest. You might be afraid to say so out loud. You might be struggling to even admit it, but you know in your heart that you might be dealing with those things. 
So if you're saved, it may be very well true that you are under demonic oppression in some way today. If you're not saved today, it could be true that you are wrestling with demons that want to possess your soul. Some of you are like, "Ah, these don't really apply to me, but my heart is breaking for somebody that I know who's struggling. And there may be a face or individual in your mind right now. And your heart is, you know, it's moved for them. Guys, why did Jesus give us this story in Scripture? I think it's because he wants us to know, first of all, that Satan and demonic forces are real, but also because he wants the world to know that Jesus changes people, even demonically oppressed, tormented people. That's why that's here. We have a Savior who has overcome the works of the wicked one. And when he's in your life, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus changes people. You can't change him. I can't change him. Other people can't change him. But Jesus can. So what's our first takeaway? If you're living in spiritual torment in one way or another today, Jesus can make you free. Second takeaway. If you've been living in isolation, Jesus can send you home with a new story to tell. If you've been living in isolation, think about what these demonic forces did to this man. They took him away from the city. They took him away from his family. They took him away from his friends. And they put this man alone by himself out in the cemetery, living among the dead. And look, this is what some people, this is what the the work of the enemy will want to do to you. They'll want to isolate you, get you alone. You'll start thinking things, maybe even believing these lies, like, you know what? No one can really understand me. Even if they did understand me, no one's going to care. So you start to isolate yourself. And then the other side of it can be like, you know what? If they did start to understand me, if they really did know, know me, then they wouldn't want anything to do with me because I'm too messed up, I'm too strange, I'm too broken. Those are the lies of the enemy coming against people. They want to keep you isolated. The work of the wicked one wants to get you in isolation because he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And let me tell you this, a lion can more easily devour its prey when its prey is isolated away from the community of love and away from the love of God. Don't hide yourself from the community of people who love you and can extend the love of God towards you. He loves you. The church is here to love you. This man was sent running away from the people who loved him and knew him. It's the work of the wicked one, but Jesus wants to bring you home, give you a new story to tell. When Jesus works in your life and delivers you, you're going to be like this man, you know? You're going to want to sit at the feet of Jesus. Don't you ever just, maybe the Lord has done a work of redemption in your life, and maybe, you know, you can be like me, like, Lord, can you just take me home to heaven? I just I want to be with you. I'm tired of the troubles of this world. And it's like the Lord might say to us the same thing he told to this, this man. Hey, look, the rest of the world needs me the way you do. So I'm sending you back out into the world. And I want you to tell them your story. I want you to tell them of the mighty things that God has done. And so some of you, God changes your life. You may be in need of a major life deliverance or transformation or freedom from oppression today and God comes and he changes you. He's going to give you a story to tell. You're going to go tell people in the world and you know what's going to happen? Some people are going to hate your story. 
they're not going to want you around anymore. Oh, they were totally cool with you when you were like, hey, let's go get drunk, let's get high, let's jump into our substances, let's get into all sorts of weird, you know, spiritualisms and uh, occult practices, and let's go get into, uh, you know, fornication and all sort of sexual sin, because, you know, that's normal. You were cool then. You were good. But you met Jesus, and suddenly you become weird. You know, Jesus changes people, like... He brings us into what real life actually is. And the life of Jesus is the stench of death to some people. So they're not going to be fine with your story. They're not going to support you. Many people may hear your life change and they be, may be totally resistant because some people don't want to be confronted with their sin or change. But let me tell you something. Some people might resist your story, but other people will welcome it. Other people will welcome it. You know what it says about this man? It's in Matthew or Mark's gospel. I can't remember which one. It says that this man went and he told them all that God has done and some people marveled. People will marvel at the life-changing testimony that you have of God's work in your life. He'll bring you home. He'll give you a new story to tell. And Jesus didn't just do it back then. He's still doing it today. And so once again, today, I want you to hear a video testimony from a UBC member named Maritza Chapman. Hear her tell the story of God's work in her life. I was raised in an extremely amazing, crazy family um, that consisted about nine children spread out from all different families. We weren't born into the family. We are just sort of picked up along the way. Uh, cousins and friends and neighbors that just sort of lived at our house and eventually became known as brothers and sisters. Very dysfunctional, but at times very dark as well, as I was raised in a cult. And so although on Sunday mornings we had our Sunday best on and we went to church and, and it was very important for us to be there week after week, but they practiced this cult at night after the lights had gone out and the world was asleep. And uh, so I lived a very fearful life at night. During the day, it was amazing. At night, it was a really scary place to be. We had little New Testaments that each of us had. Um, and because those years were scary for me, especially at night, I began to know Jesus as the one that could protect me. No one else could, but he could. And so all of those scary things that I saw during seances and all the spiritist kind of stuff that uh, my family was doing, I knew that that book contained the story of someone's life that was more powerful than all those other things that I saw. Although I didn't understand him and I didn't know him, but I knew of him. When I was a sophomore in high school, this young man, a senior, decided that uh, he was going to come talk to me, and he would talk to me during lunchtime, and uh, he was just cute as a bug in a rug, and, and I just didn't know, I would blush every time he was near me, and one day he asked me if I would go out with him, if we could go do something, and I explained to him that that's not the way we do things in our family, that we have to go through the proper chains, and we would go to mom and we would meet mom and grandma and they would basically be an interview. And if you pass the muster, then you were allowed to go out on a date. And I remember my mother very poignantly asking, what are your intentions towards our daughter? And he looked at her and said, my intention is to take her to church with me and introduce her to my best friend, Jesus Christ. 
off to church we went. We got there and it was a completely different experience than what I had grown up with. I looked up and the pastor was speaking. He was delivering his sermon and I'm hearing him share the words that we need to come to terms with the fact that we're sinners and that there's nothing that we can do about that. Only Jesus can take care of that sin life. And I just, that was the first time I've ever heard it explained that way. It was a relationship with that guy who was the strongest ever, who could protect me. He could be my friend. He could be my father. He could be everything. And I said, yes. What happened to me at 16 years old um, was the Lord in his ultimate protection of me, um, took me, made me his child. And then when it came time for me to accept this role in this cult, um, I was 20. We sat there during the seance and the incantations are being said and the black book is open and the crystal ball is sitting and I kid you not, it was all exactly that. And the prayers begin and the chanting begins and, and things start shaking and rolling and moving in this room and, and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for something to happen. And nothing's happening. And my mom's going, okay, they're telling me that you're not being cooperative. And eventually, there were a few upset chairs in the room and a lot of anger, this noises that I'd never heard before, um, ugly things that I saw in my mind's eye, and all of a sudden the room just went quiet. And nothing. And my mother is in tears. She says, you failed at the greatest task that you were ever given. She says, and you failed to do the right thing. I'm so disappointed. My family looked at me strangely after that, and I didn't know what to do about it. But how amazing was it years later when I find out that at 16 years old on that August Sunday morning, when I came to faith in Christ, I was sealed by a spirit, all right, but it was the spirit of the living God who sealed me forever. So that night, when they couldn't get in is because the door was locked. I had already been indwelled by a spirit and it wasn't going to be one of them. It was God's spirit. What ultimate protection of who I was for the remainder of my life. I once was unwanted. But now I'm adopted. She met Jesus and received a place in the family of God. You know, I don't, I don't know what sort of background we bring in this room. I know that her story is probably kind of unique in the sense that raised in a cult and kind of had this moment of trying to receive cult-type spirits into her life and you know, maybe that isn't exactly your story, but you know what? I think there are more people than we realize in this world who have had very strange, demonically influenced experiences that 
have affected them throughout the course of their lifetime. Praise God that when you're saved, he does seal you with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit locks you in to the Lord. But you know, um, the works of the wicked one can possess an unbeliever and can still oppress a believer. And I don't, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what your story is. I don't know what sort of background you may have. But what I do know is that if you find yourself in here today and some sort of the works of the wicked one have been oppressing your life, Jesus can change you. He can make you new, send you home, give you a new story to tell. So today, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and after we pray, I'm going to ask everybody to stand and sing, and when we stand and sing, I want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer. If there's something that's on your heart today where you want to receive prayer, maybe you really do sense that the oppression of the enemy some way has been working against you in your life, and you want some other believers to wage war with you in prayer against the works of the wicked one. Maybe there's some part of evil, demonic forces that are part of your life story in your past, and you want to experience the victory that Jesus gives. Maybe maybe you're in the middle of a stronghold right now, and the works of the enemies are still keeping you enslaved to some sort of substance or some sort of anger or resentment in your heart or some sort of memories, experience from your past that are like a stronghold on you, and you really want the Lord to deliver you. I don't know what, I really don't know what your story is, but I know that the works and the effects of the enemy are real and that Jesus can change you. And maybe it's not even you that's on your heart right now. Maybe you're thinking of a loved one or a family member or a friend where you're just really burdened for them because their life is trapped. And you just want to pray for them. After I pray in just a minute and we start to stand and sing, you are welcome to step out from your seats, step out into the aisle and make your way out of this auditorium through the two back double doors. There are prayer rooms back there for men and for women and we have members of our prayer team who will be there to meet you and receive you and pray with you. So if you would like prayer today after I pray and when we sing, you are welcome to meet us right back there for prayer. Father God, we uh, come before you in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus. And we are so grateful that because of Jesus, we can be set free from the strongholds of sin. And so Lord, in this moment right now, I pray that everybody in this room would open up their hearts to whatever you are saying to them. Give your people ears to hear what you are saying. And I pray that even today, demonically influenced strongholds would be broken. That people who have lived in slavery to sin and the effects of the wicked one would experience freedom in Christ. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb, which 
gives us the ability because of Jesus to overcome. I thank you, Lord, that you write new stories, that you change our lives. And now, Lord, I pray that as the people who have been changed and transformed and made new by you, I pray that we would be a mighty witness to this world, helping other people who are so desperate for change find true power for change in you. And so, Lord, over these next few moments as we respond and sing and pray, Lord, we just ask that you would be at work. We surrender ourselves to you. We ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.